Hi, I'm Willow Fiddler, and you're listening to The Decibel from The Globe and Mail. Last week, Lee Miracle died at 71 years old. She was a novelist, poet, activist, and a member of the Stalo Nation. When she was 25, Lee published a novel called Bobby Lee, Indian Rebel, about her own young life. It was based on her telling the story out loud of growing up poor, dropping out of school, in part because of the racism she experienced there, and finding her political voice in the Red Power movement. In 1988, she published a second book, I Am Woman, a Native Perspective on Sociology and Feminism. She asked to launch it at the Vancouver Writers' Festival. When she wasn't invited, she went anyways and jumped on stage to read from it. She understood how hard it was to get that voice out. And she was an old war horse herself, and she, she wanted to prevent what had happened to her from happening to other people. Drew Hayden-Taylor is a playwright, novelist, filmmaker, and the host of Going Native on APTN. He was also a friend of Lee Miracle, and his latest book has a contribution from Lee. It's called Me Tomorrow, Indigenous Views on the Future. Drew will tell us about the life and legacy of Lee Miracle today on The Decibel. Hi, Drew. Thanks so much for joining us today. I wonder how you would introduce or explain Lee Miracle to someone not familiar with her or her work. I think the best phrase to describe Lee Miracle is a force of nature. She was a brilliant writer, she was an academic, she was an activist, and she was a storyteller. There's no one word or one phrase to describe Lee Miracle. She did it all and she did it all well. Can you tell us a bit about who Lee Miracle was to you? To me, Lee Miracle is a friend, basically. I knew her way back when. We met in the early 90s when she was at Enelkin School of Writing. And we kept bumping into each other. She moved to Toronto. We, we became quite close friends. In fact, I have this rare privilege of the fact that every once in a while, she would act in some of my plays. She wasn't known as an actress, but... She liked my work. She liked me. So she was in several of productions of my plays. And this is where things get interesting about how critical she could be. She did one of my plays called Someday. And there's a single line in it called Second is Good, where a mother is trying to tell her daughter that coming in second is okay. You don't always have to come in first. And she hated that line. And we spent 15 years arguing over that line. Even when she did the play, she, she would say, my greatest acting ability is selling that single line. So I'm very much aware of Lee's praise and Lee's criticism. So I've been on both sides of it. So yes, I adored Lee and I like to think Lee was fond of me. Lee was a contradiction in so many different ways. She was a very strong, she was a brilliant writer, very, very forward in her thoughts. And yet on the other side, she had to walk down a lot of paths for that. And one of my favorite stories she told me, and again, this is not something everybody knows, is back in the late 60s, when she was a, a young woman, one of her ways of making some money was as was indicative of the time, and again, I'm talking late 60s, early 70s, she was a go-go dancer. And it was just yet another experience 
she could tack on to onto her career. In fact, she loved telling that story with a very good laugh. So Lee did anything and everything, and that's one of the things that made her Lee Miracle. But I think my personal remembrance of Lee Miracle is her laugh. Mm -hmm. She had a very loud, distinctive, recognizable laugh. And I often said you could be in the center of a hurricane with a thousand people there and you could find her very easily by her laugh. It was robust. It was the laugh of a woman who enjoyed life despite everything life threw at her. So my single memory of Lee Miracle above and beyond her literature, above and beyond everything else, is her wonderful Lee Miracle laugh. And what a wonderful way to remember her by. I sadly didn't have the pleasure of meeting her in person, but I've heard that many people share in your sentiment that they will remember and, and miss that laugh of hers. What do you think is Lee's place in Canadian literature? Well, Lee was one of those people who was right at the very beginning of what I refer to as the contemporary native literary renaissance. Basically, it was her, um, Maria Campbell, Jeanette Armstrong, and a handful of uh, American writers, mostly women, who basically lit the fire in Indigenous contemporary storytelling. Lee's first book, I think it was called Bobby Lee, I think came out in 75, and basically those novels, those stories, those bios were released out into the general public for the dominant culture to consume. And I think the understanding that dominant culture had thrust upon them about the Native experience, um, Native talent, the Native understanding of both contemporary storytelling, their history, and their point of view sort of set the stage for the next generation of Indigenous writers like me, like Thompson Highway, et cetera, et cetera, who were given an opportunity to come out and tell their story, our story, because of the work laid down by Lee and others. You mentioned her first uh, book, Bobby Lee, Indian Rebel, that was published in 1975. She later wrote about how it was edited by her white teacher and that it ended up basically being her life in his voice. Despite how that came out, the novel Bobby Lee struck such a chord for many Indigenous uh, readers. Why do you think that is? Well, I mean, you could ask the same thing about Half-Breed by Mira Campbell, which if you remember more recently, I think within the last year or two, a huge chunk of it had been removed by the publisher who thought it might be disturbing having to do with um, the RCMP, etc., and just being found by accident, and I think it's being reinserted into a, a published version. That was the way things happened back then, uh, especially for those who were unrepresented and were just trying to get their voice out there where other people had control over what was being said. Lee was young at the time, and I think getting her voice out was what was important, and she had no choice, she had to do that. But it was a learning experience for her, and something like that never happened to her again. And I think didn't, as she came back, she re-released the book, I think, with some edits in it that she, she put back in. So it was a learning experience that all writers have to go through. And unfortunately, as we discovered with both Maria and Lee, the male white gaze 
sort of dictating what was thought the Canadian public was ready for. also wrote in 1990 that when she first visited a library as a teen, she took the lack of Indigenous authors and stories as a sign that we weren't interesting enough to be there and to share. And that she, and then she became part of changing that. Writers have called her an anti-figure, you know, an anti in our, in many Indigenous cultures are a role model. Um, no, wait, 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 wait. Are you saying Anti, when you say, are you saying A-N-T-I or A-U-N-T-I-E when you say anti? And the Native community, as you know, the, both has a special significance. So which one are you using? No, we're, we're talking anti as in relation, right? Okay. <laughs> yes. But true, they both carry significance in our, in our cultures. Uh, I was getting worried there. <laughs> Author Katharina uh, Vermet, um, who was mentioned by her, uh, you know, uh, calls her auntie as well as other many other Indigenous uh, authors. In what ways was Leah model for Indigenous writers? Oh, my God. She was the... Uh, see, I don't use the term auntie. I use the term matriarch because mm-hmm. she was way there at the beginning. She handheld so many up-and-coming writers. In her passing away, there were many postings on Twitter and Facebook talking about how she personally helped or assisted or vindicated a lot of this generation's writers. So she was there. She understood how hard it was to get that voice out. And she was an old war horse herself. And she she wanted to prevent what had happened to her from happening to other people. So she was there advocating for so many up-and-coming Native writers and established writers. I was very proud to know her and and to be associated with her. I never really viewed her as an auntie just because I've known her for 30 years. I've known her since the early 90s and I considered her um, a buddy. We would get into fights. We would do all these different things that, that friends do. But the interesting thing is she's known as this person who helps people, was an advocate, etc., but it should also be pointed out that she could also be very, very critical. If she thought you were being disrespectful or you were lazy or your, or your writing wasn't as good as it should be, she would let you know, often bluntly. <laughs> Author Shannon Webb Campbell talked about how she learned a, quite a valuable lesson in terms of consulting with people that she was writing about. You know, it's really about Indigenous protocol, right? There's certain Indigenous protocols that that you follow when you're talking about storytelling. And But she says, I just fully trusted Lee to help me unpack what I had done wrong. Not only had she taught me that I had breached Indigenous protocol, but also what poetics belong to me and what doesn't. She was very, very strong on getting permission. If you are taking the voice or the story of somebody, you have to do it right. We'd had long conversations about the proper way to tell a story because the advantage or disadvantage, depending on your perspective, of being an Indigenous writer is we have to answer to our community. And Lee knew that, and part of her mission was to make sure that the younger generation understood that. When you're telling a story... It doesn't disappear into the ether. It bounces around in the Indigenous communities, and you have to be aware of that. 
What do you think Lee's legacy will be? I think the legacy that Lee Miracle leaves behind is one of a thriving industry of indigenous literature. She started off, she was still a part of it. I think in the last four or five years, she released two or three books. One or two of them she actually wrote on her cell phone. She was like 71 years old, but she was not afraid of technology. She would embrace it and use it as just a new way of storytelling. So I think the fact that she was a poet, she was a academic, she was a novelist, she was an activist. And I think Lee felt those were not four separate things. They were all roughly the same thing. And I think that is what she's leaving with us, this, this understanding that you can be all of those things at the same time. And in fact, being a novelist, being an academic is a form of activism. And I think that is what her legacy is going to be, showing us that we all wear different hats to tell our stories. Drew, thank you, Miigwech, for sharing with us today and, and joining us about the wonderful Lee Miracle. I could talk about Lee all day. Thank you. I wanted to finish the episode with some words from Lee Miracle herself. Here she is speaking to the listener, to you, last year, delivering the Writers' Trust's Margaret Lawrence Lecture. Go there and count the numbers of women as opposed to men. Check out how many are Indigenous women. Have you asked the owners, your family, your friends, the libraries, the book reviewers, scholars and schools if their libraries are balanced? Are you afraid to know about us? Is it necessary to put Indigenous women last? Before you go, we've got an update on the end of the COP26 climate summit. Adam Radwanski filled us in last week. Um, then there are the sort of unofficial negotiations where countries wind up announcing that wide range of different agreements, which might involve 20 or 30 countries at once, uh, which can be easier in a way because the official negotiations require consensus, which means you have to get almost all of the nearly 200 countries here to agree to something, which makes it obviously difficult to, uh, to achieve a lot of things. Well, they did it. They managed to get consensus. All 197 national delegations signed an agreement, which was released Saturday evening and called the Glasgow Climate Pact. A big part of the pact is about coal, the single biggest contributor to climate change. Early in the negotiation process, it was agreed that the countries would only phase out coal burned in a way where the carbon it produces isn't captured. In other words, if you use carbon capture technology, you can mine and burn coal. Then right before the deal was signed, India's environment minister asked to change the wording from phasing out that kind of coal burning to phasing it down. Many countries said they felt blindsided by this last minute change, but signed anyways. I'm Willow Fiddler, reporter for The Globe and your guest host. Our producers are Madeline White and Cheryl Sutherland. 
Michal Stein helped edit this episode. David Crosby edits the show. Kasia Mihailovic is our senior producer. Angela Pichenza is our executive editor. Thanks to Drew Hayden-Taylor. His latest book is Me Tomorrow, Indigenous Views on the Future. And season two of Going Native will be airing on APTN in the new year. Thanks so much for listening. And The Decibel with a new guest host will be back tomorrow. <laughs>